Welcome to the Leadership Playbook, the show where successful leaders share what they learn to get to where they are. This podcast is an offshoot of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. And it's brought to you by RSMUS LLP, the nation's leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm your host, Joe Phillips, the Dean of Seattle University's Albers School of Business and Economics. Welcome to this edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series. My name is Joe Phillips and I am Dean of the Albers School. We're delighted to welcome Katul Patel, CEO of Virginia Mason Franciscan Healthcare. The title of his presentation is Reimagining Healthcare, Leading Through Changing Times. Katul Patel is CEO of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health and Division President, Pacific Northwest of Common Spirit Health. In these roles, he is responsible for 13 hospitals, more than 300 patient care locations, and more than 18,000 employees. Previously, he served as the Executive Vice President and Chief Strategy and Chief Operations Officer at Hackensack University Health Network and Hackensack University Medical Center, located in northern New Jersey. Mr. Patel's leadership experience involves more than 20 years of progressive administrative management at several large health systems throughout the United States. He holds master's degrees in health administration and business administration from the University of Pittsburgh and a bachelor's degree from the John Hopkins University. Mr. Patel has been honored many times for his leadership in the healthcare industry. Most notably, he is a three-time honoree on Modern Healthcare's list of the 100 most influential people in healthcare. He was also featured as one of Modern Healthcare's top 25 minority leaders and one of the country's minority executives to watch. Please join me in welcoming Katul Patel to Seattle University. What really shaped me is, you know, when, when we were in Kenya, my parents used to go as part of the Lions Club to the remote parts of Mombasa, Kenya, where, where we were living, to really take care of the poor, the vulnerable, those that really didn't have access to care. And even though I was in, you know, very much in my, my private years, if you will, I was, you know, six, seven at the time before we moved here when I was eight years old, you have very vivid memories of what you see. And it was so meaningful to me that I've never forgotten it. You know, it's something that I always talk about when people ask me to talk about leadership and what we do as a health system. Everybody needs a why and a how and what's really vital and important to you. And that's really what shaped me. And I actually, when I came here to America, because of all the medicine I had in my background, I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. I went to Johns Hopkins thinking I wanted to be a physician. In my undergraduate education, I did research for a Nobel laureate. You know, all these things were building pedigree to be a physician. The reality is that's not what I wanted to do. That's all I knew. And I actually started to uh, take classes in health administration and really loved the administrative management side, at least what I saw as an undergraduate student. And then I started, you know, climbing the ladder in different ways. And I'm going to talk about some of the vital things that are important to me in terms of leadership. But that's really what shaped me. Now, these these pictures are important because it shows who my family is. Um, Typically, at some point, I get booed because I have these Steelers jerseys up here. Um, And then I always counter it by showing the picture of my granddaughter. Um, You see my granddaughter, who turns two this weekend. She's very clearly going to get into medicine. One of the things my daughter-in-law said is she wants my daughter, my granddaughter, to be a doctor. And so one of the first gifts we got her was this medicine kit, if you will, that shows that with a stethoscope, she's, she's taking, hearing my father's heartbeat. So I tell you, we start early in the Patel family in medicine, and there's no pressure on her, but she's going to do great in her career. 
So let me, let me just start talking a little bit about the growth of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. So in 2015, our sisters invited me to be the, the chief executive officer for the time CHI Franciscan. And so here's the roots of CHI Franciscan. And you, and you, heard, you know the name, Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, and that is a vital part of our, our journey, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But we have really two roots, if you will, of our health system. First is our uh, CHI Franciscan system. It was established in 1891 in Tacoma. You know, I look at the mission of why our sisters came here, and it's not these two sisters here, by the way. They were here in 1891. But we had roots back into the community of Tacoma, and our sisters came here to take care of the poor and the vulnerable. And if you look at Catholic health care around the country, many of the Catholic hospitals in the country are in places that nobody else will go. There's a tremendous amount of need. There's a tremendous amount of access challenges. And our sisters have gone throughout this country. And our, our particular sisters came to Tacoma to open up St. Joe's Medical Center, which is now over a 400-bed hospital, a major trauma center in Tacoma. We have a sizable presence in terms of clinical programs that continue to grow. And, and, and an obviously, a campus that we're very proud of. For all of you Seahawk fans, you know we light up the, uh, our flagship patient tower at St. Joe's in blue and green during the, during the Seahawks seasons. I tried to change it to black and gold, but our sister said it was going to be my last day in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> so we're very proud of that. You know, the other part of our roots, uh, again, and, even, and you'll see here in our journey how many different parts of geography are, is, is Virginia Mason Medical Center, which was established in 1920. And it was started by some physicians that really felt there was a need, particularly during the Spanish flu epidemic, there was access challenges in Seattle, but what, what was really formed with Virginia Mason, one of the things that I was, was really lured to, given that I was the CEO of CHI Franciscan, is we became at Virginia Mason Medical Center a tremendous, what we call an integrated group practice, integrated organization, where you don't see the difference between physicians on the ambulatory side and physicians on the acute care side or staff on either side working separately. They work very, very closely together. Virginia Mason Medical Center is also incredibly nationally known for our Virginia Mason production system, which I'll talk about in a minute, but it's something that we had a lot of interest in Lauren uh, when, we, when we merged the two organizations. But you can see here, we have deep roots in Seattle and Tacoma that formed uh, what is now Virginia Mason uh, Franciscan Health. So you'll hear me talk a little bit about change and how much dramatic change there was in this organization, but you know, we had a decade, decade, decades-long growth trajectory at the time of CHI Franciscan. And I, and I had a predecessor, his name was Joe Wilczek, who was at CHI Franciscan for 17 years. I give cre Joe credit along with our board for building what I inherited in 2015, which is a organization that had tremendous breadth of geography, that had tremendous scale in terms of the type of services that we're providing. And you can see here, in the decade between 2007 and 2019, we, we acquired Enumclaw Regional Medical Center. We acquired Highline Medical Center and Harrison Medical Center. We opened up a brand new hospital in Gig Harbor uh, called St. Anthony. And that continued to grow uh, substantially. We actually, we had exceptional growth in our medical group. Uh, we went from 45 physicians in two, 2000 to over 1,000 providers, not just physicians, providers, uh, by the time we were getting into the late uh, 2010s. You know, the trajectory for CHI Franciscan was like no other in the state. Uh, we started to see scale. You can see that we went from three hospitals uh, to 11 during that period of time before we merged with Virginia Mason Medical Center. So the breadth of who we were and the depth of what we became 
was staggering in this region, and one that I, again, I want to say this again, the amount of patients that we take care of every single day has deep meaning uh, to the communities that we serve. To continue on, you see that you know after we had our decade-long explosive growth, if you will, we spent a lot of time integrating, right? You can't have so many different organizations coming together without integrating our hospitals. There's different cultures, there's different medical groups, there's different leadership, and you have to unify under one health system, one brand. And that was a lot of the work that was done. We also started scaling our specialty services. We created a rehab hospital. We entered into a joint venture with what many people call our competitor, MultiCare in the South Sound, to create you know, a 120-bed hospital for behavioral health. It was incredibly important for the community that we serve to be able to do that. You know, then we opened up, we invested over $540 million, million dollars, excuse me, in Silverdale to open up and expand St. Michael Medical Center. And just most recently, we announced that we're going to invest another $105 million to, to build 74 beds in, in a growing community of Kipsap County. And again, it's become a major tertiary center for many people that used to come to Seattle and Tacoma for their care and an expanding geography of people that are going to continue to be there. And then we started building a relationship with Virginia Mason Medical Center. My, my former colleague, Gary Kaplan, if he was here, would tell you that Virginia Mason Medical Center, including him as a leader, was a poster child of independence. The lore and the national reputation was tremendous. In fact, when I was being recruited here in 2014, 2015, I'd heard of three names. I heard of the university system, which you always do whenever you're looking at an or a region. I heard of the Swedish brand for many reasons because of scale predominantly, and I heard about Virginia Mason Medical Center. I knew about the Franciscan system, I just didn't understand it with the depth of knowledge that the Virginia Mason brand had nationally and internationally. We actually started and built what we called a, a clinical affiliation and a strategic alliance. It was what we now would, would say was an umbrella relationship that said everything and nothing. But it was the, the primary purpose of that was to get to know each other, to see if our cultures would potentially align to learn about uh, each other's legacy and our history, see if our board members felt from a cultural perspective we could come together. And so we became Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. We have 18,000 team members. We have over 200 sites of care. We have 340,000 inpatient days in the organization of our size. We have 1.7 million outpatient visits and then 272,000 emergency department visits. So you can see the scale in which we are. And again, just a map, okay? And you think the a map shows many, many things to different people. We are the only health system that covers the entire Puget Sound. We go from the major, what I would call, uh, locations in this, in this area, Silverdale, uh, the, the peninsula, obviously, Tacoma, and Seattle. Even though we don't have a location in Everett, you, know, you can see that we continue to, to grow north. And when we put together Virginia Mason and Franciscan Health, we knew even though that it was in, in the late stages of the pandemic, we were going to continue to grow. And uh, as you can see from the appetite of our health system that we've had, we always grow. And even though it's going to take time and, and some of the challenges of COVID have really impacted us, we will continue to grow uh, throughout the region because we're, we're very, very proud of the care that we provide and we have national accolades because of it. Again, another comment about the, the scale, if you will, of our services. We have some major, major destination services that you look at. You see our Center of Digestive Health, our Center for Neurosciences and Spine, our Bailey Boucher House, which was the first HIV AIDS and end-of-life care facility in the entire country that was founded through Virginia Mason Medical Center. We have a Benaroya Research Institute that is a world leader in autoimmune uh, disease. And so, and the Franciscan Hospice House, which we've had inpatient hospice care for the South Sound, it's something that we're very, very proud of. But you can see some of the scale of services that we have within the region. 
There's, a, there's an organization called LeapFrog that gives your grade. When I came to Franciscan, uh, some of our Franciscan hospitals actually had a D and an F. Several had C's, several had A's. Virginia Mason Medical Center is one of the only hospitals in the country that has had an A grade since the beginning of the time that LeapFrog started to uh, give grades. And what I told everybody is that, you know, grades are grade, whether you believe in the scaling system or not. When somebody gives you a D or an F, you have to do better for our patients. And I'm very proud that as we sit here today, we have every hospital in our health system that has all A's and one B. Only health system in the state that can say it. Now these things swing back and forth based on the year. And obviously uh, COVID challenges as a, as a health system. It was something I'm very proud of. Our Francisco Medical Group has gotten accolades. And one of our leaders is here, Dr. Smith, who leads um, the Franciscan Medical Group. So you can see all this here. One thing is healthcare is in constant change. You, you, everybody who lived through the pandemic years uh, realized that the only thing that's going to be constant is changed. Uh, we were one of the first health systems in the country. In fact, this region, as all of you recall, was the first region to have a first COVID inpatient case. Nobody knew what to do. You know, we counted on the intuition, the background, the education, the clinical expertise of our of our nursing staff, our physicians, all the people that just drove and were built and trained for times like this. And it changed us as an industry. For health systems that were doing well financially, completely changed because of the challenges of COVID. We were, we were overcome with patients that we had to learn and take care of. They were there for many, many days. And so we've been built on change and it's something that we'll continue to go through. There's two big things in healthcare that are going on right now. First is our workforce. In 2020, in about March or April, you know, as many of us were rounding when we didn't know what to do, we rounded as administrative leaders. We wanted to make sure we had supplies in place for our, for our staff members to take care of our patients. I ran into one of our nursing staff at a post office, and one of the things that she had said to me was, I feel compelled to um, delay my retirement to stay. And I share that because that was incredibly meaningful. You have people whose lives were impacted so much by the pandemic, but they felt a moral obligation uh, to their profession to stay. That lasted for a year. And now we see massive, massive shortages in, in, in clinicians and staff. Many people opted out to leave healthcare to go to Amazon. Many people opted out of, of working in the acute care setting to go to the ambulatory center uh, setting. Many people opted out to just retire. And we've seen a huge influx of retirements and changes in professions for people uh, in, in our region. And so you know, we have to respond, and we have to respond demonstratively to, to be able to do that. We've got to find ways, particularly with universities like this, to ensure that we're training strong, excellent staff to become part of our healthcare industry. The costs of labor have increased sizably. So when you have a challenges with workforce, you have to find ways to get people here to take care of our patients. We had our, we, our increase, we increased our premium pay. We have travelers that were coming that really came into communities that lived for six months or a year and then moved on to somewhere else. There's a huge cost to that. And so the burden that we face in the industry without better reimbursement was staggering for us. And so we are here now, you know, one of the things I talk about quite a bit is that we have to rebuild our culture. You know, we have all those signs that you saw in 2020 that talked about healthcare heroes, it changed because the political landscape changed around vaccinations. It changed because there was tremendous unrest in the community that impacted healthcare. And our workforce sometimes became the target of that. And so we're at a place right now in our journey that we have to rebuild our culture, rebuild our workforce, and remind people that we have healthcare heroes that are 
working in our hallways every single day, taking care of your family members, your people that you know and love as well. And then lastly, I think what we learned, obviously through the pandemic, is that we have to increase our diversity in the workforce. People relate better to people that they see and know they're like them, all right? And we, we have found that sometimes healthcare does not represent the regions that we're part of. So we're deeply invested in diversity of hiring our workforce. One of the things that we're doing, as an example, is there's a, a historically black college named Morehouse School of Medicine that trains black leaders, black physicians. And we are now a satellite place for them, for medical students to come and train. We will continue to grow that. In fact, over time, we may have a satellite medical campus here where we're training uh, more and more students to continue to diversify our workforce. Those are the type of things that we're doing at Virginia Mason Francis Canal, but frankly, our industry is faced with it. The second thing is innovation. I never thought in my career you would start seeing more and more digital technology in healthcare. In fact, we're an industry that is very far behind. We're late adopters. The cost and burden around reshaping things is pretty significant for us as a health system. But COVID actually forced us to do that. We have some things that we're doing at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health that some started before the pandemic. We have something called the Mission Control Center. If you walk into our Mission Control Center, it looks like a NASA-style center. You see screens everywhere. We have clinical expediters that are there to ensure the patients are going at the right place for the right level of care. And we built it in 2019 because CHI Franciscan at the time was incredibly challenged for bed capacity. We had over 105% of occupancy at every one of our hospitals. And we thought that if we could find ways and use artificial intelligence and, and learning to be able to shape when patients are going to be discharged and otherwise, we might be able to um, you know, fast track, if you will, uh, efficiency in an organization. And so here's where we are as a health system, using digital technology. We have virtual care capabilities where now we have nurses that are looking at a screen that are, that are watching and taking care of patients in Texas. Uh, we're a lar part of a larger national health system, and so we export some of our di digital capabilities. And also, we learned that we, as an organization, are not going to always own everything. So we have to find partners that are really scaling into healthcare. And you can, any article you read, you'll start seeing Wall Street having a significant impact in healthcare because they see there's a space for retail care. They see there's a space for ensuring that commercial-based patients have a better place to go to as opposed to an inpatient hospital. We've deep, and starting to deeply invest in preventive care uh, because there's a huge need to it. And we've start, started building partnerships and relationships with some of the Wall Street companies because we know they're gonna scale in a larger way. Amazon's done it, Walgreens is doing it, CVS is doing it, you know, pharmaceutical companies that used to be just pharmacies are now having primary care offices if you are seeing primary care in, in, in drugstores. And so we have to start partnering with these locations or Wall Street's gonna take over uh, healthcare in general, so we have to partner them. The last thing I want to comment on here in terms of innovation, Ingrid Garbino, one of our uh, key leaders, is our chief innovation officer. And when we came together as Virginia Mason Production System, um, I had the opportunity to really understand what VMPS meant. And there's a lot of books and publications that have been written about Virginia Mason Production System. The, at the core of it, VMPS allows you to eliminate waste and be a lot more efficient for the organization. Most importantly, to do what's right for our patient. What I loved about our Virginia Mason production system, which we actually scaled all throughout our health system. And every single leader, it's an expectation that you are certified through VMPS. But the most important part of this is you allow our staff members to be part of our journey for change. Every single staff member has the ability to allow us to be better. 
And the reality is many of our clinical staff, our bedside staff, our, our staff that are uh, not having a strong voice necessarily like I do, having, being, being in front of all of you, have the ability to now shape what we're gonna become as a health system. So I'm exceptionally proud of some of the things that we've done there. One thing that won't change, right? And, and you, know, you heard me talk a little bit about our sisters and the values that came from our Franciscan sisters, but our values will not change. We have to align our compassion and inclusiveness, integrity, excellence, and collaboration. These are things that we uh, embed with every employee in the organization. We ask you to commit to them. We ask you to live them. And every employee needs to, needs to embrace that to be part of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. So I started my career in administration as an administrative fellow is what we called it. It's, it's a postgraduate fellowship. It's an internship, it's a one-year internship. Cora Weish is one of our administrative fellows at, at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health, and it's something that we are deeply committed to. One of our board chairman, who actually lived in that community and I knew because I grew up in that community, put his arms around me very early on in my career, and he said to me, if you want to be successful in your career, you need to live on an elevator. I looked at him, what do you mean I need to live on an elevator? And he explained it to me, and something I have never forgotten. Okay, and that's one of the lessons I've learned as a leader. And his comment to me was, if you wanted to be successful as a CEO, a director, at the time obviously I was not a physician, but a physician leader, is you have to connect at every level of the organization, whether it's somebody that's in security, somebody that's in the boardroom, somebody that's a leadership role. And I, I implore all of you that are going through your journey in management that you think about that and you learn, develop relationships at every level of the organization. It's not about getting to the boardroom and living there. In fact, you become a better leader, better CEO, better CFO, if you, if you learn from the, from the folks uh, that are in different parts of the organization. It makes us better as a, as a leader. And the last thing I just wanna share is some more pictures of my granddaughter. And I, and I do this because it's a reminder to me. Now, even though I see many of our 18,000 team members at Virginia Mason Franciscan Health every day, I look at her and I realize that part of my job is to have the responsibility to make sure that she, as she grows in her career, and she's turning two, as I mentioned, this weekend, as she grows into adult and she go, gets older and older, you know, she's gonna have health needs. And part of my job and part of my role and part of every single healthcare leader's role is ensure that we have access to care. Our sisters came here in 1891 to ensure there was access to care. And we have to make them proud. That's why I tell them all the time. But that's part of our role, is we have to shape healthcare now so that when our, my granddaughter is at the age where she needs a lot more healthcare, that we've shaped it for the next generation. And so that's what I want to leave you with in, in, my, in my words uh, to all of you. And I again want to thank Dean Phillips and uh, the rest of you for, for being part of our, our time together. So thank you very much, everybody. Okay, thank you, that was terrific. And now we're gonna to move to the questions, but before I do that, I will just give an intro on our, on our panelists. So furthest from me is uh, Kirsten St. Clair. She has two decades of leadership in hospital systems. She currently serves as president of Bon Secours Mercy Health Urgent Care. And that organization is a Catholic health system based in Cincinnati, Ohio. And in her role, she's responsible for starting an integrated urgent care company within Bon Secours. And prior to that, she did something similar with Seattle-based Providence Health Systems, 
where she served as group vice president and chief executive for Providence on Demand. And before that, she led a successful acquisition and integration of a startup urgent care company. Kirsten earned her undergraduate degree in marketing here in the Albers School and received an <laughs> executive MBA at the University of Washington. Closest to me is Rohan Sethi. He is a senior economics major. After graduation, he plans to attend medical school and to specialize in interventional radiology, which is the department he interned with this past summer back home in California. Gave him an opportunity to shadow the director of the department so he could learn about the business side of the field. And he has uh, used his economics classes and economics projects as an opportunity to integrate his interests of medicine and business. And then finally in the middle is Irina Muller. She's the director of scientific operations for the Allen Institute for Cell Science and also a student in our professional MBA program where she's also earning her certificates in leadership formation and innovation and entrepreneurship. She holds a master's in biology, a PhD in biochemistry and molecular bio biology. She's originally from Germany. However, she's also lived both in the Arctic and Antarctic, but has been a Seattle resident for the last eight years. So those are our panelists. As I said, they will start with the questions, but I have a few that some of you have sent in. So Rohan, why don't you go first? You're closest. My first question for you is, maybe you could speak on uh, the value of a physician or a nurse going into leadership in healthcare and kind of using that background and maybe behind the scenes of kind of your work. When I first started my career, there was actually a pretty sizable movement for physicians and clinicians to become CEOs. In fact, when I started my health administration program, there was a, a gentleman named Jim, Jim Block, Dr. Jim Block, who was the CEO of Johns Hopkins Medicine. And I really admired him because he had the ability to understand the needs of a patient and at the time, you know, see things from, a, uh, from his lens of, of taking care of patients and it made him a more effective leader. And again, just one of the things that was a pretty significant lure to us was when you look at Virginia Mason Medical Center, there's people like Dr. Smith and Dr. Gabino who practice medicine and, and they became very prominent leaders. In fact, they're two members of our executive leadership team. We have a chief nurse executive that, uh, that obviously was a clinician in our own right. It gives you an opportunity to see things that, frankly, I don't have the ability to see, right? You, have, you can have clinical conversations with people that I can't have. I can fake it. It doesn't work that way, though. And so, you know, we, we, I saw a big movement for clinical leaders moving into administrative ranks outside of the classic chief nurse role or the chief medical office role in the 90s. I actually think it will continue to grow, and for all the reasons that I just said earlier. In fact, when you look at, you know, I mentioned Wall Street a little bit, there's a huge lore of Wall Streeters to pull brand name physicians and brand name uh, nursing leaders uh, to become part of their organization because they can speak in language and speak in terms that frankly many of us who are business minded can't do. And that doesn't mean that's the reason you become uh, a clinician to become a CEO or otherwise, but I see more and more of that happening in, in, in the next decade or so. I know you touched on a little bit at the end of your talk with your leadership journey, but I was hoping I can dig a little deeper. Yeah, so you're a highly awarded leader in a really challenging and complex field, and I was just wondering what do you think makes you an effective and successful leader? And kind of looking back um, onto your career, how would your answer have been different at different stages throughout yeah. the career, and if so, why and how? 
You know, I'm not sure everybody would say I'm an effective leader, so I'll start that. But I, you know, I, I've been very lucky in, in, in my career that I've had great mentors, and it starts there. You know, I, I referenced my administrative fellowship. Well, I had a CEO that took me under his wing. In fact, one of the first things he said to me was that after your one-year fellowship, you need to move on. And I said, well, what do you mean? I'm investing a year here. Don't you think I should have the opportunity to stay? And he said to me, you know, I don't hire our fellows because I want them to go somewhere else and then potentially come back if they're good. And part of it is because people always remember them as interns or fellows. The reality is there was so much change going on in the health system I was part of, growth and acquisition, he ended up hiring me. So I had the opportunity to, to work there. But I, I would always say that, you know, you gotta find people that you can learn from and sometimes people that you won't, you learn things not to do, right? That, that's just as important as, uh, as learning from people and what to do. I think that's a very vital part of it. You know, you're shaped because of experiences you've had. You know, I've had the opportunity to live in San Diego, Chicago, New Jersey, Pittsburgh, and here. You know, different cultures, different climates, different markets have different personalities, and you learn from that. They have different types of leaders. Uh, you know, we talked about clinical leaders. We've, I've worked for a physician leader. I worked for a nurse leader. I worked for an administrative leader. And that helps shape you. I did get, you know, I, I'm going to keep talking about advice I get because it's real. Years ago, I was a 29, excuse me, yeah, about 29-year-old vice president. And I was in charge of corporate strategic planning for a health system called Sharp Healthcare, a very well-known health system. And we had a prominent um, president of one of our hospitals who was really, really well-known. He was driving our entire organization in terms of clinical depth and e economics, if you will, for a health system. And my job was to create a strategic plan for Sharp Healthcare. And the CEO of the system asked me to do that. He didn't want to do it. And he called me and he said, I want you to come visit me. And I came to see him and he said to me these words, never forgot it. He said, you know, you seem like you're a smart guy. You seem like you know what you're talking about. There's a lot of buzzwords you're using. Because at the, at the age of 29, that's what you do, buzzwords. And he said to me, he said, you know, one thing you've got to learn is timing. Sometimes organizations are not ready for what you're trying to accomplish or do. Sometimes organizations are not ready for change. And, you know, that's something I learned over my career is there might be great ideas that need to happen, right? We have many organizations that want to become part of us or we want to grow into. Maybe it's not the right time for the organization. The other is, you know, be a sponge. Be a sponge in every single way. I'm a, I believe in learning. I learn from every employee and every interaction I have with people around uh, this state or anywhere else I go. You know, our, our Virginia Mason production system, system lends itself to be able to do that. I ask our leaders to always learn from each other because that's a big part of our journey. But no matter how successful you are, and no matter where you are in your career, you can always learn something. So that's the first thing, Cora, one of the things I said to her when I had my first meeting with her as a fellow is be a sponge. And no matter whether you're 24, 28, 30, 50, 60, 70, be a sponge. If you want to be a leader, be a sponge because there's always somebody you can learn from. So you touched a little bit on the role of non-traditional yeah. players such as Amazon, Walmart. I think I even heard that Dollar General was getting yes. in the business. Yeah. And so maybe just talk about what that effect will be on healthcare and just yeah. the role of the health system yeah. in the future and, and how that's all shaped. Yeah. Yeah, I'll start off by saying I actually welcome the entry of, of Wall Streeters coming into the market because it will make us better. Our industry you know, is becoming very stale, right? The change that was occurring was incremental, not exponential. You know, the reason that Wall Streeters came into our industry because they saw an opportunity to 
uh, to fill a gap that many of us couldn't do, whether it was speed and access, whether it was retail-based care, uh, whether it was concierge care, whether it was contracting directly with employers to, uh, to find ways to reduce um, costs for, for the employer. It happened for a reason. I think all of us are responsible for it. I, I look at, at the Amazons of the world, the Walgreens, the Walmarts, to shape us and, and, and to be better for the patients. You know, I, I keep, I'm going to keep saying this. We're here for our patients and for the people in the community that we serve. And they have, every person has a different need, and we have to find a way to address their need, whether it's preventive care, specialty care, virtual care down the road. And so the, my philosophy on, on some of the companies that are now proliferating in healthcare is you're not going to stop them. You have to partner with them. You have to weigh, there, there's something that we can give that they're not going to want to enter into. They might, Amazon's not interested in inpatient care, but they have patients that will need inpatient care. And so we have to find a way to partner with them as opposed to our competitor that might be able to partner with them. One Medical is another organization that's in this, in this community. You know, we're going to be announcing a partnership with them. Don't tell anybody, but we're going to be announcing a partnership with One Medical here very soon. We announced recently a partnership with Optum that acquired Polyclinic and Everclinic uh, several years ago. That entire uh, patient base was going to Providence and Providence Swedish. Now those patients are going to come to us, and partly is because we have welcomed these organizations into our healthcare space, and we believe in partnerships, and we don't believe we have to own everything, and we can't. I mean, we have, in the traditional, as you know, in the traditional not-for-profit healthcare, there's just not enough money to spend to, to go into innovative ways that, uh, that the Wall Street or otherwise can be, and so we've got to find a way to, to partner with them. So again, the, the short answer to your question is I, I welcome some of the folks that are coming into our industry, but more importantly, we have to find a way to partner with them in spaces that they're not interested in as well. Thank you. Could you speak a little bit more about, you mentioned earlier about why you chose to go into healthcare administration, um, maybe over being a physician, yeah. um, providing that care directly, and maybe how you kind of pl uh, decided between them and... Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's an interesting story. You know, I don't know that I ever wanted to be a doctor. I thought I wanted to be a doctor, right? Because my dad's a doctor. Uh, even though my mom was a nurse, you know, very clinically minded, um, obviously. Uh, my older brother, under his eighth grade yearbook, Under Ambition, has cardiothoracic surgery. And now he's a cardiothoracic surgeon. So that's what I knew. If you're Patel, you're either a doctor, an engineer, or many immigrants came in this, com uh, this country to own 7-Elevens and Dunkin' Donuts or a hotel. Okay, that's, that's the way it was. I don't know that I ever loved science. Right? I, I went, into, uh, went to Hopkins because thinking that's all I really should be doing. My first year I took all the traditional classes. I didn't love them. You know, uh, Hopkins, Johns Hopkins at the time was very cutthroat. You know, you, are, you take organic chemistry lab and there's people, if you walk away, they're dealing with the, making sure your, your purity of your the outcome is not as good, right? So you see that kind of behavior. It just didn't speak to me. But the final conclusion for me was, I, I mentioned earlier, I was doing research for a Nobel laureate. He was one of the most brilliant men I've ever worked for and been around in my, uh, in my career. So much so, I never understood what he was saying. He, he taught molecular cell biology, and I was in his class. And the average grade was 22, I believe, and a plus or minus 14 deviation, and so that was a B grade. And that, to me, was not learning, right? And so, you know, I... I won't mention Dr. Amfrenson's name, but he's a, I mean, a Nobel laureate, I mentioned his name, but he's a, he's a Nobel laureate. But you know, I, I just knew at that time that is not what I wanted to do with my career path. And at the same time, 
even more so, I started dabbling in classes in health administration. And I found that, you know, I really want to stay in the medical field because it really drew to me, but I didn't want to be a physician. So I followed my, uh, my path to go into health administration. I still had in the back of my mind that maybe I'll be that uh, MD, MHA, MD, MBA kind of person. But what was the point of going through all the years of, of medical school and becoming at least clinic, clinically credible to all of a sudden pivot right away to become going into medicine, right? If I, if I was going to go in that direction, you want to practice for a few years and then learn what management's about. So that's really what that drove it for me. Since you talked about partnerships already a little bit, I was wondering to hear your thoughts or ideas around how basic research, translational research, and like the healthcare field could partner better together to speed up the process getting from the bench to the bedside. Yeah, so we have, um, we have the Benoit Research Institute, Institute. Obviously, it's world, no, no, I keep saying world, we're now, but it is, as for autoimmune disease. You know, the, the history around, we've got the Hutch in this community, obviously. We've got University of Washington attached to the Hutch. We've got University of Washington doing quite a bit of bench and basic science research. Swedish has dabbled in it. We've dabbled in it with the Benaroya Research Institute. But what we bring to the, the science of the industry, so to speak, is we have patient base that we can use for clinical trials. You know, to me, I don't see our health system really delving further into basic science research uh, and clinical research more so than what we're doing right now. I think that we have the capabilities to be able to do it and the physician and the clinical interest to be able to do it for us. But the, I would say the focus for us is not that. We, we want to focus on taking care of patients, either through preventive health care or through acute care needs when they come into our health system. Just thinking about the headlines on health care, rising inflation, staffing shortage, labor shortages, travel nursing, what is the catalyst for change that will propel healthcare into the future and will allow us to be sustainable. I don't know that I want to answer this because Sister Jude, Sister Anne, and Diane are watching me and they're going to hear me say that I don't know. And, well, that's why I was hoping. Yeah. That's why I asked the question. You know, I, we, we talk about lowering the total cost of care all the time. And I, our industry's not figured it out, right? I mean, we, we, we are, in this state, we're so largely fee-for-service, even though we have you know, relationships around population health and value-based care, the reimbursement's driven through fee-for-service, meaning that you want to get patients in the hospitals, right? There, there's reimbursement that occurs with that. You know, we have to find ways to, to, to lower the total cost of care, and the way to do that is preventive care, is digital care, and making sure that, that we're not overusing the, the health care needs that, that are in right now. I, there was a time two years ago, I understood why every health system was providing signing bonuses to all the clinicians because it made uh, nursing, particularly nursing. It made a lot of sense, right? We, we, we were seeing the traveler rates so high in this country that it made more sense for us to provide a signing bonus for us, for, for a nurse as an example, to become part of our health system. And then signing bonuses turned into wage rate increases. There was inflation in this country. Clinical nursing staff knew that the only way to get back to stability was that healthcare organizations can compete against each other for staff. Amazon was drawing, as I mentioned earlier, uh, different staff. We are not going to be able to get away from wage inflation. I mean, we've seen 30% increase in our wage rates in our health system. It's going to continue to, to grow, right? I mean, you see a lot of different activity that occurs in this state around, around that, right? And so we have to find ways to get costs out of our system. That's the only way to do it. In this state, there's not a shortness of, lo of looking for patients. The first place in my career that I've worked where a health, a health system is not searching for geographies to find patients. We have 
more patients that are in need of care that we can't get in our doors because we have shortages of staffing. We don't have access points in the right places. We have provider burnout or provider access challenges that we have. And so we have to find a way to get those patients in our doors that we don't have. Those are the two, perhaps three things that I would say that's going to help stabilize us. But it's, you know, for, for those that ask me, I think it's going to take several years for us to, to stabilize. You know, we, you know, CHI Franciscan and the Virginia Mason Franciscan Health was very strong because we made smart, appropriate decisions for our patients in the right locations. And so we, we were able to reinvest in the community by building hospitals at St. Anthony Gig Harbor, St. Elizabeth and Enumclaw, St. Michael in, in, uh, uh, in Silverdale. We build large-scale ambulatory sites all throughout the region. We just opened up our Northside facility, Northgate facility, excuse me, just uh, two years ago. You know, those are the type of investments we were able to make because we were smart about you know, what we were doing as, a, as an organization. We're in a very, very different place. You know, I think we are, it's going to take, in my view, two to three years for us to get back into stability. And part of it is we allowed the industry to get to where we are right now. And we didn't make harder decisions earlier, you know, and sometimes some of those harder decisions affected people's lives. And, you know, we've have, we have to do more of that to make sure that we are uh, keeping more um, of our staff closer to the bedside every single day as opposed to doing other things that might be exciting. I wanted to ask, I think we have some nursing students in the audience, right? So I need to ask a question on their behalf. And the question would be, where do you see the field of nursing headed in the future? Yeah. And what would you recommend to current nursing students that they should be doing and thinking about so they are ready for those changes that you see ahead? I think first and foremost, we have to rebuild the excitement around nursing. You know, e even though when you look around the country, uh, we can't get enough nurses in their business because we don't have enough people teaching the courses that need to happen. And that's challenging for our entire industry. But we have to rebuild the lore of nursing. People went into the profession because of the fact that they're able to save lives and take care of people. The last two and a half years has, I think, taken some of that lore out of it. It's become harder. Um, there's political challenges in this country that have impacted what we're doing in healthcare. We've had major staffing issues, so it creates burden for a person that's already here. So we've got, we've got to find ways to keep, get the excitement back about the profession. That's really important and vital. We also have to start showcasing earlier on in people's journey. In fact, we now start reaching out to, uh, to high schools, show people what the profession is all about, right? It's not about necessarily what you might hear in the press or otherwise. It's here's what you're doing. You're here to take care of people. What is, what is better in, in life than taking care of somebody else and allowing them to, uh, to have a better lifestyle? So we're, we're going into high schools to be able to do that. The last thing I, I would say is that, you know, there, there's many different parts of nursing that I think we have to showcase. Digital care is a big part of our journey. Uh, we've had challenges uh, with recruiting nurses in ICU, um, in telemetry, in, in, in the ambulatory sites. And I think we've got to continue to showcase to the profession that you know, it's not just one area that you could be a nurse. There's so many different areas of nursing and the profession of nursing that might be meaningful to you that might not have, that might, might, you might not have known, known about in other ways. Yeah, could you speak a little bit more about how you make those telehealth implementation decisions while kind of maintaining that kind of patient care, that feeling yeah. that patients still yeah. want? Yeah, first and foremost, it's not me that's making those decisions, right? They have to be people that are, that are clinical leaders in our organization. You know, there, there's things we know that you don't, you don't need somebody sitting right there with you. One of the things that, one of the reasons that we scaled virtual nursing is there was times we had a nurse sitting with a patient, sitting with a patient because 
we weren't sure they weren't going to um, create harm for themselves. They're not going to have falls in, in the hospitals. And now you can actually have a, have a camera with, with a nurse that has the ability to make sure they're connected very quickly to a nursing staff member that's actually there. So you have to, this is my point earlier about trying to decrease cost of care. That is an aspect to be able to do that. The other is there's things you can do just a lot more efficiently, efficiently right? I mean, it's not about, we, we have been burdened because of staffing challenges and for us to be able to scale virtual care, we need to start to be able to make sure that people understand it. One thing I'll tell you, when we were, when the pandemic first started, we were seeing, I think, probably about less than 3% of our patients through virtual visits. In the height of Delta, in high of Omicron, we were close to 22% of our patients through virtual care. We've stabilized, gone up probably around 40, 14, 15% of our patients in virtual care. And, you know, the challenge wasn't just for our patients, it was for our providers that didn't understand or didn't know, didn't have the experience to live in the digital world, right? You know, typically you come, you have a patient come in, you take care of them, you do their HNP, you, you have an opportunity to talk. They had to learn their profession differently too. And so those things are vital and important for us as well. So your organization saw a lot of like rapid growth over the last decade and all the challenges with the pandemic, turnover, burnout. So it's kind of like a climate where it's sometimes really hard to kind of hold steady to your mission and values. Yeah. And yet in your presentation, you said that, right, that's the one thing that cannot change is your values. So can you share any kind of like lessons learned? How do you hold on? Yeah. to your values while everything changes? You know, we have an incredibly complex industry. I don't want to keep harping on the pandemic. The pandemic showed where, where we had gaps. We had huge gaps in, the t in who we were taking care of, the people that have ac having access. You know, the, I, I like to keep things as simple as possible in a complex world. And you know, what we talk about all the time to help people understand our values is that we are here for our patient. They're front and center about what we do. We're here for the patient and our community of people that are trying to come into our doors so we can keep healthy. If you keep it that simple and you talk to people about how would you want your family member to be treated if they were in our, in, in our care, I think it resonates in an exceptional way. Right? You have a family member in the hospital, you, you know, one of the things that, that you want is to have somebody that's, that's really caring for them uh, in their time of extreme fear. Right? I, have re I have the ability to have resources because I can call Dr. Smith. I can call Dr. Cabino and say, I have no idea what, what's happening with my brother and my sister. Can you help me understand that? Right? They're a calming influence. Most people don't have that. And so you know, our staff have to embrace that because when you talk about the patient and why it's so important and make it real for them, I think people you know, rally around that, frankly. I guess I will, for the last question, we'll just ask you, when you think about the future of healthcare leaders, what are the key attributes you're looking for? You know, I'll go back to this. You have to be an exceptionally learning, have a focus on learning. That has to, very prominent in my, in, in anything I ever talk about is learning. Two, you gotta be collaborative. We're in, the, we're in the people business. When you're in the people business, you have to learn how to work with other people. You have to learn about, what we talk about team-based medicine, team-based care, means you have to put your ego, your pedigree behind you or side and just say, help me take care of that patient. You know, the third thing I, I would say is to understand and embrace that change is going to happen every single day. You, you have to build leaders that understand and embrace what change is going to be all about and actually lead through change. And those are the three things I would say. There's a list of many more, but those are the three things I would say.
How about you? You can answer this too, because as a healthcare leader. <laughs> no, I think a growth mindset, yeah. just because of, like you said, it, there's change every single day. So, mm-hmm. and then I think, you know, what I see a lot in the Albert School of Business that they're focusing on that maybe was not as much of a focus when I was in school is around emotional intelligence, really understanding. Uh, the people that you work with, and you talked about that, spending you know spending your time outside of the office and and understanding what drives people and and I love that the the business school and that we're seeing a lot more courses on that area as well because I think that's an important part of future leaders. And with that, we're going to have to end it here. So let's thank Katul Patel for being with us tonight. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, the podcast edition of the Albers Executive Speaker Series at Seattle University. If you enjoyed what you heard today, consider telling a friend and give us a good rating on iTunes. You can subscribe to our show for free on your favorite podcast app or find us online at leadershipplaybook.org. Find out who our next guests are by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm Joe Phillips, the Dean of the Albers School of Business and Economics, Thanks for listening.